thanks to Harry's for supporting Industry Focus. Harry's is so confident that you're going to love their blades, they'll give you their free trial shave set. All you need to do is sign up at harrys.com fool and pay for shipping. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, March 23rd, and we're talking tech and whether to defriend Facebook. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by senior tech specialist Evan New. Evan, it's been a pretty brutal week for Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. I think that's an understatement. <laughs> I can't really think of a, a worse playbook for how to handle a, a corporate crisis than maybe what we saw play out over the past couple of days. It's been a little bit all over the place. We're going to run through the timeline of what's happened with this Cambridge Analytica story. But the the thing that was so tough for me to see is the immediate denial of any like trouble or wrongdoing or saying, oh, this wasn't a hack, this wasn't a breach. Uh, when you see a company do that from the get-go, that, that always makes you kind of scratch your head a little bit. Yeah, their response from the very beginning to the story has been very, you know, not the best way to handle a scandal like this. <laughs> <laughs> and so, for people that may not be familiar with what's been going on, this is uh, this is something that's been years in the making. Uh, so Facebook used to allow third-party apps to scrape user information, and there'd be some element of user opt-in for a lot of these. And it would be part of surveys or apps that were available on the platform at the time. And so the information that would be grabbed would be things like things that you like on the platform, maybe some information on your friends as well. You go back to 2014, Cambridge University researchers were using this for academic work with personality tests. And they were approached by this political consulting firm, Cambridge Analytica, and they decided not to work with them. And then one of the researchers from that group, uh, Alexander Kogan, basically went off, built his own version of it, and then worked with Cambridge Analytica to give them this information, which was actually in violation of the terms and conditions that developers accept when they work on Facebook's platform at the time. Right. And I think that's you know, it, this was one of those personality, you know, quizzes. And, you know, when people just check this box, no one reads these things anymore. And you, you, know, you check this box that consents to share your data. But the thing is at at the time, you know, back in 2014, Facebook's tools basically allowed at the time allowed it. So where if, you know, you could consent to share your friend's data. So even if you never took one of these personality quizzes yourself, if you have a friend that does, which, there's a lot of people that like taking these types of quizzes on social media. Uh, that could inadvertently expose your data, even if you never even took it. And that's part of what makes this so controversial, right? Is I think the number that I've seen is, of the millions of people that had their profile scraped, only a tiny portion, I think it's like 270,000 people, had agreed to let researchers scrape their data to begin with. So you talk about the kind of add-on effect of letting your friend's information come through too, and that's where people start to get really mad because it's like you know, like Betty, their high school classmate or something like that, decided to take this survey, and now they might have my information. Um, and of course, some of the issue here, too, is this was being collected under the guise of academic research, uh, and that it wasn't going to be used for commercial purposes. And at the time, had Kogan simply collected the data and kind of kept it for academic purposes, it would have been fine according to Facebook's developer policies. The problem is that he then gave it to Cambridge Analytica, which violated the developer agreement. Right. And, and yeah, I mean, it's just crazy because the multiplier effect is huge because, I mean, yeah, 50 million people's information based on, you know, some around 300,000 people. Because, yeah, I mean, people have hundreds of Facebook friends. So it's a pr it's pretty crazy that they even allowed, they just didn't, that didn't, that 
they even like let that happen in the first place back then like that doesn't sit right with you <laughs> like i mean i don't know how you even just common sense it just seems silly that you would allow one person to share all their friends data too you know it's just kind of a kind of a big oversight on facebook's part there yeah and over time they've they've kind of worked to something that is maybe a little bit more palatable for people what's amazing is that this story goes so far back and the versions of it are so different depending on what your what your time reference is cuz you go back to 2015 and facebook learned that information was being turned over to cambridge analytica and so they removed Kogan's app from their platform, and they requested confirmation that all the data had been deleted. And, and you think that that's that. And, and what winds up happening is it resurfaces uh, you know, several years later, because it's a possibility that maybe that data wasn't deleted, and it's still out there, and these raw files are available, these profiles are available. And you know, given some of the issues, you know, the, the perception that there's been election meddling and that type of stuff, um, the idea that you could target people on social media in a hyper-focused way is very unsettling to a lot of people, understandably so. Right. And there's been quite a lot of backlash now, um, you know, which we'll get on later. But yeah, it's, it's, it's been a pretty wild week. And I mean, they initially threatened to sue some of these news outlets. Now they're like, okay, we shouldn't have threatened you to, to sue you. <laughs> and you know, the, just their whole response is, has been terrible. And they've, they've, they've really fought hard to try to keep this out of the public eye. But of course, it's, it's now it's out there. And now they have to deal with not only the, the fact that it happened, but also their own response to it, which has, has been really sorely lacking on, in a number of ways. Yeah, this, this kind of came back into light because of some reporting done by the New York Times and I believe another outlet. And Facebook did not respond particularly well. I mean, they they went to ban Kogan and Cambridge Analytica from the platform, but the first initial responses, uh, you know, from from public officials for the company were saying like, "This isn't a hack. This isn't a breach. This is something that these companies were authorized to do at the time that they were doing it. It's just that they then decided to violate our terms and conditions with what they did with the information that was collected." And as someone who maybe just had a ton of information about them exposed, that's not reassuring at all. Yeah, and if anything, it's actually even more troubling that <laughs> that you know third-party developers could get this information all kind of using the Facebook tools in the way that they were designed at that time. And of course, yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, those developers shared it in an improper way. But the point is that Facebook tools back in 2014 were designed in a way that that straight up allowed this to happen in the first place. So that's almost even worse than like getting breached by hackers with you know maliciously. And what didn't help either was that Mark Zuckerberg waited four days to respond. So you had all these other people at Facebook making public comments and, and kind of talking on the record about the issue. So four days later, you get a Facebook post from Mark Zuckerberg, and he gives a timeline of the events, kind of the plan for the platform. And this is what people want all along. They want the CEO to stand up and say, you know, we're, we're going to be accountable for this. I think maybe we got that a little bit. But I also noticed in looking at the formal post, he never said sorry and he never actually apologized. So, like, there's <laughs> there's some element where he's accountable for this. And, he, you know, there's this, like, with great power, great responsibility element to it. And he clearly understands that they need to make some changes to the platform. But he wasn't like, hey, guys, we really messed up. I'm so sorry about this. You know, he was still kind of a little guarded in what he said. Right. Definitely. That was a big omission on his statement. But I mean, I, I will say that I think that he did a good job, at least 
you know, clearly sh- telling us, you know, the timeline in a pretty clear, concise way. Because, you know, some of these news reports, it's kind of hard to follow. But he laid it out very straightforward. And he also laid out their, their plan on how to move forward, uh, which is to kind of, you know, investigate and audit apps that have access to your data uh, before that they, you know, made these changes to how they, these tools work. They want, they're going to develop, uh, restrict the access that people have going forward. They're going to automatically remove um, <clears throat> access for th- anything you haven't used in like three months, I think. They're also going to try to bring these privacy tools more prominent, you know, because these privacy tools are buried in the settings menu on Facebook. They're going to try to put these up f- right front and center on the news feed so that people know they're there and, pe- you know, reminding people that they have more control over the privacy settings than you might think uh, as, as a way to kind of make sure people understand how their data is being shared, trying to give them more control. So we talked a little bit about the media backlash that happened with this. Uh, there's also the user backlash that comes with an event like this. And perhaps not surprisingly, delete Facebook becomes this trending topic on Twitter. And and in my view, at least, one of the more damning posts or kind of public comments about the whole topic, you have WhatsApp co-founder Brian Acton posting that he was deleting his Facebook. And he is not currently with WhatsApp, but Facebook wrote WhatsApp a pretty big check, you know, as validation <laughs> he, he for their work. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for someone that is, you know, has some ties to the business, to be like, you know what, I'm deleting my Facebook. Uh, I don't think that bodes particularly well for public perception of your platform. Right. Exactly. And I think the real, you know, if we want to look at it from from the angle of an investors, you know, I think there's three main angles you want to look at it from. You want to look at it from a, a user impact perspective, an advertiser, and a regulatory. Angle, so on the user side, yeah, I mean, like you said, people are outraged. This hashtag delete Facebook is trending. If you look on Google Trends, the the term delete Facebook is rising there too. Uh, so it's clear that there is a lot of user backlash, and a lot of people are talking about you know deleting, deactivating. Uh, what's not clear is if this kind of backlash is going to be sustained, or if it's just kind of the initial gut reaction, and then if you fast forward a few months, it kind of fades away. We don't know; it's too early to say. But investors will definitely want to keep an, eye, uh, an even closer eye on user metrics in the coming quarters. I mean, user metrics are obviously you know kind of one of the headline metrics, anyways. But now it's even more important to really see what happens to these numbers in the wake of this scandal. You know, because we've already seen that you know users in North America are kind of saturated, maturing, so they're kind of flatlining already, which is not a bad thing. But if that number starts to kind of head down, you know. You know, these are trends that investors going to want to keep an eye on, and it's also worth noting that in certain parts of the world, deleting Facebook isn't really even an option. Like in some parts of the world, Facebook is the internet, and particularly in like some emerging markets like Southeast Asia, where users rely heavily on Facebook as you know their primary way to interact with government representatives, their communities, things like that. So Facebook has a lot of work cut out with it, you know, to regain users' trust. Yeah, and actually, it doesn't seem like you are buying the trust story because you deactivated your Facebook account, right, Evan? Yeah, so I actually personally deactivated my account because this this whole thing is just really creepy. I never, I'm not super active on Facebook, anyways, and I certainly don't take these quizzes. But as we mentioned before, maybe one of my friends <laughs> took my quiz and shared my, da- you know, ended up sharing my data. Who knows? But I haven't really been getting a whole lot of value out of Facebook lately, and. In recent months, they've really ramped up their notification spam to this really annoying, obnoxious level where it's basically these, you're getting notified when anyone anywhere on your friends list does anything on Facebook at all. <laughs> it's just really obnoxious. So I, I didn't go as far as to delete my account, so I know they still have a lot of my data. Uh, but I'm definitely going to take a break from the platform and you know kind of sit on the sidelines for a little bit. 
I think those push notifications, in a way, kind of speak to how we've interacted with Facebook and how that's changed over the past five, ten years. Because back when, like, I was in college, you know, you'd post statuses all the time, you write on people's walls all the time, and that is really not how a lot of people use it these days. It's almost more like this consuming thing. You like scroll through your feed, you see videos. But that engagement isn't quite there in the same way, and so I get updates sometimes, like someone updated their status, and it's like, oh gosh, I haven't done that in like probably a year, you know. And it's yeah, like it was like a major yeah, life exactly. announcement when I did that. It was like I moved or something, and so you know, I wonder if those are there because you know they're realizing that people aren't working with the platform the way they used to. You know, on the note of North America, Evan, uh, some recent data came out from Edison Research. They do their Infinite Dial research note, and it just came out for 2018. And they survey a couple thousand Americans. Uh, they found that use of Facebook among Americans dipped for the first time ever in their most recent survey. And that drop was most noticeable with users between 12 and 34, it fell 12 percentage points from 2017. So, you know, we're, we're looking at kind of what's going on. This is in some ways a platform that is struggling with a lot of bad news, but I think that there are also some demographic shifts, shifts that are happening that um, are maybe impacting its relevance. Sure. And of course, you know, we always talk about Snapchat kind of getting that demographic. But yeah, I mean, I think it all kind of plays into what Facebook's trying to do recently. You've heard a lot. Mark Zuckerberg talk a lot about trying to reduce passive consumption of content on the site, which is like you mentioned, what people use it for nowadays. You read links or, you know, you're not really engaging with people as much anymore. So I think their shift in this notifications is trying to get people to interact with their friends again. But the kind of hard thing is I don't think that they're good at picking who you actually want notifications about. So they're just kind of letting you know anytime anyone posts a photo, updates anything, puts a comment. You know I mean? It's just crazy the amount of stuff they're doing now. Um, <clears throat> but I think they're trying to kind of pursue this whole like meaningful interaction and, and engagement idea. But they're, I don't think they're executing on it very well. But, and then this whole thing comes along. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly... Um, yeah, so, so like, yeah, I think another aspect to look at is the advertiser that we were mentioning uh, which arguably is the most important for investors because that's where the money's coming from, right? And we are think, and we are going to do that, Evan, on the second half of the show. Before we get over to the second half of the show, though, I want to give a shout out to Harry's for supporting the podcast. Uh, people that have seen the videos of Industry Focus know that I am usually a bearded fellow, uh, but when I found out that Harry's was supporting the show, I had to give their blades a try. The result: a comfortable glide, a nice close shave, and more importantly for me. No nicks or cuts. That's coming from someone that does not shave all that often, so keep that in mind. Harry's is all about a great shave at a fair price. They stripped out all the unnecessary features and costs to deliver customers a perfect razor at a great price. Because Harry's owns the factory, they're able to deliver amazing quality blades for just $2 a blade compared to the $4 you pay at the drugstore. And really, a good shave just comes down to good blades. That's why over 3 million guys have switched to Harry's. All products are backed by an 100% quality guarantee, and Harry's is so confident that you're going to love their blades, they'll give you their free trial shave set for free, like I said, when you sign up at harrys.com fool. All you have to do is pay for shipping. That set includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, which I am particularly fond of, and a travel blade cover. It's a $13 value for free when you sign up. All you need to do is cover shipping. To get it, go to harrys.com slash fool. That's harrys.com slash fool. So, Evan, we talked a little bit about the user side of things. Why don't we talk a little bit about the advertiser side, right? Because all of these elements of the story that are kind of unseemly to consumers, it's exactly what makes Facebook such a compelling platform for marketers. Right, exactly. And I would argue that 
the advertiser impact is the most important aspect to look at for investors because that's where all the money comes from. Uh, you know, and thus far over the past two years, this whole controversy over Russian meddling and using social media and Facebook uh, to interfere with the election, like it's been this huge overhang on Facebook um, as far as you know the coverage and the sentiment and perception of Facebook. But we haven't seen any impact on the financials. You know, for example, last year in 2017, you know, and again this controversy has been going on for about two years, right? Uh, advertiser revenue was up 49% to 40 billion in 2017. So there's, you know, there's clearly not a whole lot of impact on the financials as far as advertisers are concerned. And I think the real irony here is that the whole situation really just shows how effective Facebook ads really are, so much that they could, you know, they could have potentially helped sway the election. And that tells advertisers that their ad dollars are still well spent on this platform because the ads are effective and they're, they're kind of doing their intended purpose. And I mean, of course, advertisers follow users. And users also steadily increased throughout 2017 as well, uh, despite all this ongoing you know, controversy. So you know, it kind of uh, certainly does tie back to the user impact. You know, so if users start to actually leave Facebook in large numbers on a sustained basis, then that could subsequently impact the advertising business and the financials. Uh, and but again, it's still a little bit too early to call. Um, Mark Zuckerberg was on TV yesterday doing some interviews and. He said that he hasn't seen a lot of people deleting in large numbers, but who knows again, what that means? Right, exactly. <laughs> on, on a two billion dollar, on a two billion user number, who knows what large numbers mean? You know, to, to Mark Zuckerberg. Right, exactly, and, and, and like where geographically are those users located? If you know, so there's a lot of details that we don't know yet, uh, but the potential is still there that you know the financials could hurt if there's massive user backlash. Yeah, and something that's kind of interesting with you know thinking about user composition on a social media platform is uh, I've kind of long had this theory that uh, it is good for a platform to have folks outside of the millennial demographic on it. You know, I think that you look at like click-through rates, you look at uh, people's willingness to engage with ads. I think that tends to be higher. Uh, as you get above 35, uh, I think that you know most millennials kind of have come of age in an in an era where they've been just inundated with ads online, and so you have ad blindness in a way that maybe you don't for people uh, that came onto the internet later in life. And so you think about that that stat before, where most of the people leaving the platform were between 12 and 34. That's where it was most felt. You know, you, you get outside of that, and those might be the people that are staying. Uh, everyone that seems to be leaving from 12 to 34 is going to Instagram. That's another property that Facebook owns. Right. So, I mean, if you're going to delete Facebook, technically you should delete Instagram too. <laughs> yeah, you can't just protest one, right? You're, you're, you're still using their products. Throw away your Oculus Rift. You know, delete WhatsApp. <laughs> yeah, you got to you got to go whole hog. You can't just do part of it. Um, so, I think think from an investor perspective, though, something that is uh, kind of on my mind with this story is the regulatory impact because anytime you have a lot of people like throwing their hands up and and wondering about the privacy of their data or the security of their data that's where lawmakers start to get interested and they, and they start to you know knock on your door and say hey we need to have a couple chats we're seeing that that's happening already you know people want to talk to Mark Zuckerberg thinking about the digital media business in general that that's what i'm looking at for facebook and even google too Right, and, and and you know, amidst all this Russian election stuff, I mean, there's been a lot of talk over the past year or two about you know regulating political ads uh, specifically, but now the conversation is kind of expanding to talk about just kind of other re- forms of regulation, kind of more broadly around privacy in general. And regulatory risk is a part of many industries, and now that risk is becoming a very real uh, possibility for Facebook. 
Uh, and I mean, fundamentally, no companies like being regulated, even though regulations are generally pro-consumer. But not only are they always, you know, substantial costs associated with compliance, but companies basically lose a lot of control over how they can run their businesses. And that can be very burdensome, very specifically within tech companies, which put a lot of value on agility because tech evolves so rapidly that you need to be able to move fast and, and keep up with stuff. And I mean, Facebook's motto has always been, you know, move fast and break things. But it doesn't really work out very well when the thing you're breaking is democracy. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're breaking user confidence, like that's not particularly great either, right? Yeah. Right. And, you know, just you know, to kind of bring this home, I mean, the EU uh, actually passed a regulation back in April 2016 called the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR. And it actually goes into effect in May of this year, which is just you know, two months away. And it opposes rules across all EU member states that apply to all companies processing data on EU residents. And violations can come with, you know, potentially massive fines up to 4% of revenue. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's the theoretical maximum in a lot of companies if they violate these types of things they can usually settle for a lot less but it is you know the point is just that there are you know, a lot more countries are becoming more cognizant about you know wanting to take privacy of their citizens seriously and this whole controversy just speaks to that and i mean, I mean and facebook is certainly aware of this eu regulation because again it, you know it's passed almost two years ago but you know the possibility of you know what if the u.s does something like that or other countries so it, it is another thing that is going to be on the minds of investors it's it's a much more prominent risk now another topic that this has kind of bubbled up is this idea of should mark zuckerberg be at the helm of facebook you know uh and and i think that looking at the tour of the united states that he has done over the past year and a half or so his repeated trips to china um, there's been speculation that his ambitions maybe go beyond Facebook and that he has some political aspirations at some point. But thinking about kind of where he is now, you know, some people are saying the way that this has been running and the way that the platform has been handled over the past year and a half, two years, maybe he shouldn't be in charge. Uh, you may feel that way. I think the reality is as long as Mark Zuckerberg wants to be at the helm, he is going to be running the show there. Right, exactly. I mean, it's it's pretty common in scandals and crises like this for people to call out for the CEO to resign or to step down in the wake of a scandal. But, you know, you have to remember that Zuckerberg has about 60% voting power, so no one can really oust him. I mean, technically speaking, that's what a board of directors is there for, to, to you know, fire a CEO if they have to. But since he has so much voting power, he's, he can single-handedly vote directors in or out. So those directors are still ultimately beholden to him. And you know, so there's really not a whole lot of accountability, you know, that public investors can have here. So yeah, like you said, he, he's only going to step down if he personally feels like he's not the right person for the job. But I don't think that's the case, and I think it's pretty clear that he he does plan on leading Facebook for the long term. I mean, he's still young, certainly, and, and you know, he hasn't expressed any doubt in his own confidence, uh, other than to kind of own, try to own these problems. So yeah, I wouldn't expect him to relinquish the CEO position anytime soon, and and there's really not much you can do about it. And speaking of, of the investor perspective here, I'm a Facebook shareholder, as are you, right, Evan? Yep. And how are you thinking about this? Uh, you know, what's your what's your going in for like the next couple months with this company? I don't know. It, it definitely has me questioning uh, Facebook's role, and I don't know. It, you know, they certainly again from an investing perspective, the numbers are still there, the financials are still there, but then you have to kind of question their they've clearly screwed up really badly. And they're not handling it well, but lots of companies face huge scandals and issues. And you know, if they can overcome it, they can still you know thrive in the long term. So I'm still kind of on a wait and see how this plays out. I'm certainly questioning it, but I'm not making any decisions quite yet. And 
it's just I'm going to wait a little bit and kind of see how this plays out over the next few months. But certainly I'm not feeling happy about my holdings. <laughs> well, I think uh, what's what's a little frustrating, too, if you're looking for indicators as an investor is the way that the MAU number is calculated. It might be that any serious exodus that we see from the platform won't really bear out until uh, calendar Q2 results, right? It might be that in Q1, the numbers are strong enough that it doesn't really matter. So, like, if you're looking for that as an indicator, there might be kind of an information lag there, which is why putting this out to listeners: if you have decided to deactivate or delete your Facebook account, please write into the show uh, or tweet us at MF Industry Focus. Write into the email industryfocus@fool.com. I would love to get your rationale for it, and you know, just kind of a sentence or two. So, please do that. Um, my perspective as an investor is, you know, I think about. How many people are on the platform? And people get really annoyed all the time when this type of stuff comes up. The reality, though, is we've entered this kind of social contract with these companies where we're not willing to pay for what they're offering, so we're willing to be the product. And we kind of get up in arms sometimes when you know it doesn't quite go the way that we'd like it to, or you know there there's kind of some unseemly element of that relationship, but. At the end of the day, we're not willing to pay to be connected to our friends online. You know, it's the case with Facebook, it's the case with Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, you name it. There really isn't a pay for social media experience out there. And so long as that's the case, and they're the big titan here, I don't really know that anything's going to change that much. Yeah. And it kind of makes me, it kind of makes you appreciate this crusade that Apple's been on for the past like two or three years, really highlighting their, how they approach privacy and, you know they've really antagonized these advertising companies, including both Google and Facebook. But you know, at the core of it, of this privacy debate, exactly like you mentioned, you know, like we've agreed to this implicitly or explicitly. So how how angry can you be when it, things like this happen? When you knew all along that this was a possibility and a risk, versus you know a company like Apple that's like works much harder to kind of safeguard your data and has no business built on selling that data. So it it does kind of resurface this kind of ongoing debate that has always been there. But yeah, I mean we we have given them this data willingly. So you know we're also kind of you know complicit when things go wrong. Yeah, and if and if you have issues, I guess, with the idea that you're being then targeted with very specific messages, it's like it's still a message that you have to be susceptible to, right? It's still like seeing a marketing message, and and you have to decide that, that <laughs> you have to decide that that's something you want to react to. And uh, in some ways, it's it's kind of the nature of our digital world. I think it's kind of unfortunate, and in some ways, you know, Facebook handled this well. Uh, they when they got news of it, you know, reacted, and maybe didn't take as strict a reaction when it came to playing out platform-wide response and kind of doing things to scale back and make sure that this is less likely to continue to happen or that Cambridge Analytica can't continue to do what they had been doing already. Um, My issue with them as a company, really, was how they responded this most recent time where they had a lot of bad news come out and they immediately started finger-pointing. Most people didn't know the backstory that they'd already done quite a bit of preventative work on this, and so they like immediately looked pretty obnoxious, and and that's just not a good look for a corporate you know uh, enterprise. It's just like just own it. If you make a mistake, just own it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that is my investing takeaway and my management takeaway. If I could say anything to Mark Zuckerberg, it would be just own it. He's trying. He's Not trying. Doing a good job. He's trying. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, that was a long-winded rant to end the show. Evan, do you have anything to add before I let you go? 
<laughs> I think I've said enough. <laughs> I think we both have. I'm going to cut it here. Uh, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. Uh, if you want more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows over at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for putting up with our rants behind the glass. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.